0: Ooh, baby, I love you.
1: Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, retired professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for downloading, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or if you'd like to write us a review on iTunes, as several people already have, we greatly appreciate that, certainly help us out as well. So tonight... We are recapping the first episode of Raw from 1998, January 5th, 1998 to be exact, live from New Haven, Connecticut, McMahon country. We open the show with Stone Cold Steve Austin walking around outside the arena. He said that word is out that all the superstars will be gunning for him in the Royal Rumble, so he is going to do one to others before they can do one to him. Fun fact, that quote is not Austin 316, but rather Luke 631. I mention this because a certain wrestler thinks Austin is not religious enough, and we're going to touch on that in just a little bit cue up the opening credits, which still contain an angry Ahmed Johnson wielding a 2x4, and for just a few brief seconds, a couple quick shots of the departed Bret Hart. Oh, I noticed it, WWF, you can't get that by me. Your first match is Ken Shamrock, Versus Farouk, accompanied to the ring by D Brown and Kama Mustafa. We flash back to September fifteenth, where Farouk gave Shamrock a spine buster and punctured his lung, causing him to bleed from the mouth. I think this was actually legitimate, which means we do have documented proof that Farouk was stiffing the shit out of people well before his APA days. We also flash back to the past few weeks where Shamrock made D'Lo and Kama tap out to the ankle lock. If you downloaded this podcast last week, you'll know that the Rock volunteered Farouk for this match out of the kindness of his heart and surely not because he's trying to establish his position at the top of the Nation of Domination pecking order. After a few minutes of an okay-ish match, The Rock ended up walking to ringside, where he gave some instructions to D'Lo and Kama. They looked confused, but eventually Kama grabbed a chair and held it up in the corner while The Rock distracted the referee. Farouk was going to Irish whip Shamrock into the chair, but instead Shamrock reversed it, and Farouk went face-first into it instead. Why Kama didn't just put the chair down when he saw that Farouk was going to run into it, I do not know, but of course, as I always say, every time you look for logic in wrestling, a buffalo gets its wings. Shamrock then hits Farouk with a belly-to-belly suplex, Shades of myself when I was younger, then transitions into an ankle lock, causing him to tap. After the match, Farouk yells at Kamal. while the Rock comes into the ring to confront Shamrock. Rock makes it apparent he wants to fight right now, but before they can do so, Stone Cold enters the ring and hits both Shamrock and Rock with Stone Cold Stunners. I was actually surprised and quite pleased to see that The Rock sold the stunner completely normally here, instead of his usual carry Strug triple somersault that he would later use every time he took the move. Austin then escaped through the crowd, and there was clearly no security guard to help him like they have nowadays, so he had to fight his way through the fans on his own. I was kind of hoping he was going to hit a few of them with stunners as well, but no such luck. Kevin Kelly then informs us that Don King will be on Raw tonight to discuss the WWF's ongoing negotiations with Mike Tyson, but fuck all that because Jim Cornette is walking to the ring with two old guys in suits, one of whom is holding a title belt. Cornette references his work shoot promo from last week where he ranted that the WWF needs to have more wrestling as opposed to sports entertainment. Side note, I played a clip of it on the podcast last week if you want to listen to how excellent a rant it actually was. So Cornette tells us the two men are NWA President Howard Brody and Vice President Dennis Coraluzo. And I know what you're thinking. I thought the leaders of the NWA were Dr. Dre and Ice Cube. No, this NWA is actually the National Wrestling Alliance, and Cornette tells us they stand for tradition. Not only that, but Brody and Coraluzo are willing to anoint the winner of this next match to be the new NWA North American heavyweight champion. Well, I mean, the WWE already has a European champion, so why not a North American champion as well? Hell, how about a championship for every continent? Outback Jack can be the Australian champion, Akeem can be the African champion, the Yete can be the Antarctic champion, and then only the Intercontinental champion can travel around and fight them all. I'm just spitballing here, but I really think I'm on to something. Anyway, the competitors for the NWA North American Heavyweight Championship match will be Jeff Jarrett taking on Barry Windham. Now, Jarrett recently returned to the WWF two months prior in October 1997, where, stop me if you've heard this before, he cut a work-shoot promo, which included taking shots at Eric Bischoff, DX, and his former WWF country singer gimmick. However, he made the mistake of, well, perhaps being a bit too shooty with the company's top star.
0: What about Steve Austin? Now here's a guy who has lowered himself to shaving his head and coming out here every week, not once or twice, but 10 or 15 times and saying the word "ass." that's right, saying the word "ass." just to get a reaction, just to get noticed. Stone Cold, no, 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 Stone Cold, you will always be the ringmaster. And as far as your, what is it gentlemen? Stone Cold, as far as your blasphemous merchandise, that offends me. Austin 316 offends me because what you're doing is ripping off the Bible to oh, put please. money That's in your great. pocket.
1: How did that go over? Well, here's an excerpt from a blog entry Vince Russo wrote on a website called Share Shot Reality back on July 11th, 2015. The title of the entry is, The Night Stone Cold Almost Killed Jeff Jarrett. I won't try to imitate Vince Russo's accent. The day of Jarrett's return, I wrote an in-ring promo for Jeff as I write always in-ring promos. Jeff was just one of those guys that liked you to write his verbiage for him. After giving him the words, Jeff read through the promo and came back to me. Upon his return, he said that everything was good, but he was going to add just one little thing. During his promo, he was going to add in there a part about Austin's use of 316 and how blasphemous Jeff felt that phrase was. He was also going to accuse Steve of using the Bible reference as a tool to strictly make money. Steve was on the other side of the curtain waiting for him when he came back. Steve was freaking furious. I mean, his bald head was broken. Bl- Blood red. As soon as Jeff came to the back, Steve was verbally all over him, holding nothing back. He told Jeff that he was messing with his livelihood and that he didn't appreciate that. Jeff backpedaled like I've never seen anyone backpedal before or since. It was literally the heel backing off the baby, but this was not scripted. After the explosive tongue lashing, Steve tracked me down. He gave me clear indications to never book him with that son of a bitch. Steve then went on to tell me that even though it was the 316 promo that set him off, that his history with the Jarretts went way back when, as his boss, Jerry Jarrett paid Steve so little money, he had to live on boiled potatoes when he worked under him in Memphis. So now fast forward about six months later. Things had cooled off by then, almost forgotten. Thinking Steve was over it, I made the mistake of trying to book him in an angle with Jeff. When we arrived at TV, Steve pulled me in a and read me the riot act citing everything he had told me verbatim six months prior steve hadn't forgotten one word of our conversation not one after apologizing because he was right and i was wrong i changed the show on the spot in order to meet steve's wishes so needless to say, Jared hasn't been doing much in the WWF since he returned and cut that promo. As for his opponent, Barry Windham, at this point in time, he's a pudgy 37-year-old sporting a mustache. Basically, he looks like a wrestling Ron Jeremy, and that comparison is even more appropriate when you see that his trunks literally just say BJ, as in the abbreviation for blackjack. And yes, this is one of the men Jim Cornette has handpicked to fight for the prestigious NWA North American Heavyweight Championship. In fact, let me take you through a quick bio of Barry Windham. By most accounts, the guy was a very skilled worker. He was actually in the early, just-going mainstream years of the WWF as part of the tag team The U.S. Express, where he teamed with Mike Rotunda, the future IRS. They actually held the titles going into the first WrestleMania, but they lost them at the event to the team of the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkoff. The U.S. Express may be best remembered for their patriotic theme song, which was written specifically for them by Rick Derringer. That song was called I Am A Real American. However, when Wyndham left the WWF, the song was passed on to Hulk Hogan, and the rest is history. Wyndham then joined the NWA and was actually so well respected he was asked to join the Four Horsemen in 1988. He remained in the company until March 1989, when his contract expired and he returned to the WWF, where he was given a cowboy gimmick called the Widowmaker. He stuck around for only four months before leaving the company for undisclosed personal reasons, but just remember this example of Vince McMahon not exactly giving him the best gimmick. Wyndham soon returned to the newly renamed WCW in May 1990, where he rejoined the Horsemen. He mainly wrestled in tag matches with his stablemates Arn Anderson and Sid Vicious until mid-1991, when Ric Flair was fired and left for the WWF. Wyndham was elevated to the number two spot in the company, where he faced Lex Luger for the vacant WCW title in a steel cage match. In a rare double turn, Luger won the title and became heel, and Wyndham turned face. He kept chasing the WCW World Heavyweight Championship and never won it, but he did manage to defeat the Great Muta for the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, which WCW still had ownership over in 1993. He eventually dropped the belt to a returning Ric Flair later that year, and his career was then marred by knee injuries, culminating with him taking a two-year hiatus from wrestling entirely. So that takes us to 1996, when veteran wrestler Barry Windham ends up getting hired once again by the WWF. What does Vince McMahon have planned for this second-generation superstar who was once a part of wrestling's most respected stable? Well, Vince turns him into... The Stalker. I'm going to play you a clip from one of his vignettes. Just picture a first person camera view of someone wandering through the woods while someone verbally taunts them.
0: Can you see me? I see you. (laughs) And if it were dinner, I'd be full! (laughs) Ah, The Stalker.
1: Now, for a little context, when he utters the line, and if it were dinner, I'd be full, picture a man wearing camouflage clothing and matching camouflage face paint, jumping out at you and brandishing a machete right in your face. Basically, it's the first person view of Nicole Brown Simpson's last moments. Also, clearly that camouflage will help him a great deal in the WWF, what with those green and brown wrestling rings they're famous for. And why is he called the stalker when he seems more like a hunter? If you tell me someone's a stalker, I'm not thinking of a guy hunting prey in the woods. I'm thinking of a dude jerking his gherkin outside his ex-girlfriend's bedroom window. And while I'm it, the line, if it were dinner, I'd be full? So are we to assume the stalker is also a cannibal, in addition to a remorseless murderer? I'm confused. Also, you would think this character is clearly one dark evil fuck, right? Nope, they ended up debuting him as a babyface, because clearly, when I think of the name, The Stalker, I think... Yeah, sounds like a good guy. I can really root for that dude who is presumably lurking in my bushes to commit sexual assault on me. Does he have any merchandise? The stalker, however, is the subject of one of my all-time favorite backstage rumors. There's probably no way this is true, but I'm going to mention it anyway because it's amazing. Apparently, before he debuted, there was talk of keeping him a heel and having him feud with babyface Mark Merrow. And how would they build up the tension between Merrow and the stalker? Well, of course, the obvious answer is that they were going to have the stalker cut Sable's throat. Kayfabe, that is. Not real life. That would probably result in a lawsuit. An amazing rumor, obviously. Probably no way it's true, but just like the X-Files, I want to believe. As you might expect, the stalker gimmick only lasted a few months, although you can see him get eliminated by Goldust at Survivor Series 1996. Wyndham was then rebooted as part of a tag team along Justin Hawk Bradshaw, the future JBL, and together they formed the new Blackjacks. Wyndham is the son of Blackjack Mulligan, and Bradshaw is the nephew of Blackjack Lanza, but no wrestling fan under the age of 65 gave a shit, so they basically toiled in obscurity for most of their tenure, although you can see them compete in a four-way tag match at WrestleMania 13. And that brings us up to date for the current match. Jeff Jarrett, versus Barry Windham for the NWA North American Heavyweight Championship. After a few minutes of so-so action, Coraluzzo distracted the referee right as Windham got Jared up on the second turnbuckle for a superplex. Cornette then snuck into the ring and whacked Windham in the back with a tennis racket, but Windham completed the superplex anyway, and with both men down on the canvas, Jared just rolled over and pinned him to become the new NWA North American Heavyweight champion. After the match, Jarrett put on the belt and began to celebrate until who should interrupt the festivities, but none other than that blasphemous ringmaster Steve Austin, who hits Jarrett with a stunner and then mocks his trademark strut. He then grabs a chair and heads backstage, presumably to ask Vince Russo if he can never be in the same ring as Jarrett ever again. Ken Shamrock is now shown backstage, and Kevin Kelly asks him how he feels about getting stunnered earlier tonight. Shamrock says he hopes the Royal Rumble comes down to him and Austin, because he would love nothing more than to be the last man thrown out before Austin wins. Well, he didn't exactly say that, but it was the underlying implication. Next up, guest ring announcer Sonny heads to the ring dressed as a schoolgirl, complete with pigtails and lollipop, because she clearly wants to fulfill the creepiest of all male fantasies. Yeah, there you go. Pretend you're 13 years old for me. Oh, that's good. Ask me to tutor you in algebra. Side note, I actually had sex with my teacher, but unfortunately I was homeschooled, but but that's neither here nor there. Next up, Truth Commission members Sniper and Recon with the jack-off pardon me, the Jackal, apologies for that typo, taking on Disciples of Apocalypse members Skull and 8-Ball. Before the match, the Jackal once again does his routine of kissing a girl's forehead and then placing a bindi on it because clearly this has a lot to do with him managing a group of South African white power paramilitary guys. This reminds me of one of those old-school wrestler-manager pairings from the 80s that made no sense, but one day you turn on the TV and say to yourself, wow, I guess the smooth-talking con man Slick is managing the Russian communist tag team, the Bolsheviks, now. All right, sure, why not? Side note, actually happened. Anyway, the crowd is clearly into this match, as you can hear them chanting for Sonny several times. The match ends abruptly, when either Skull or Eightball pins the member of the Truth Commission, who isn't Bull Buchanan, after a DDT. After the match, Kurgan comes into the ring and beats down the two bikers, culminating with that classic talentless big man move, the claw to the head. He only releases the hold when the jack-off enters the ring and slaps him in the face. Even though we're now a few weeks into the Attitude Era, it seems like this particular feud is left over from the new generation. Two gimmicky stables no one gives a shit about, but damn it, we're gonna give them to you anyway, whether you like it or not. Next up, Degeneration X head to the ring. China is pushing Triple H to the ring in a wheelchair, and Jim Ross informs us that Hunter will be heading to Birmingham, Alabama tomorrow to consult with Dr. James Andrews about the severity of his injury. Spoiler alert, he's going to have similar conversations with Dr. Andrews at least two more times in his career. We flash back to last week's WWF Championship match, where Owen Hart had Sean in the sharpshooter, but Triple H whacked him in the head with his wooden crutch to draw the disqualification and save Sean's title. Hunter then helpfully informs the ladies in the crowd there's plenty more wood to go around, presumably meaning he has a large supply of crutches. He then calls out Owen, who appears on the TitanTron. Owen says he wants Triple H's leg to heal first, so that when he's back to being 100%, Owen will fight him and then break his other leg. He then refers to himself as a Blackheart and tells us that Blackhearts matter, or something. Hunter tells Owen to watch his back, and the segment surprisingly ends without HBK saying anything, perhaps as well of dick jokes, has finally run dry. Now, I don't normally include these in the recap, but your 1-800-collect slam of the week is Vader hitting a moonsault on some poor enhancement talent from Shotgun Saturday Night this past weekend. In lieu of flowers, that gentleman's family requests that you send donations to the Squash Jobber Foundation. Next up, we have Owen Hart taking on Savio Vega, accompanied by Los Bariquas. Quite the downgrade, huh? Last week, Owen was fighting Shawn Michaels in the main event for the WWF Championship, and this week he's kicking off the second hour of the show against the former Quang. Some quality Jerry Lawler lines in this match. Mentioning that Stu and Helen Hart had 12 children, he noted they have produced more tragedies than Shakespeare, and he then said that the Bariquas put the panic in the word Hispanic. Vintage Lawler, for better or worse. Owen was on the offensive early on until DX entered at the top of the ramp and distracted him, allowing Savio to take control of the match. This included tossing Owen outside the ring for the Barriquas to beat on him, which resulted in a referee running out from backstage and getting in their faces. So where the fuck was that referee earlier when Cornette clobbered Wyndham with his tennis racket? But uh, never mind. Despite the fact that it seems like the ref is clearly ejecting the Barriquas, they don't leave and actually try to interfere again. However, their efforts prove unsuccessful, and Owen just rolls Savio up for the three count. After the match, Owen starts walking up the ramp toward DX, but the Bariquas jump him from behind and beat the crap out of him. The four of them then carry Owen up to DX, where Hunter slaps him a few times. He then pays off the Bariquas for doing his dirty work, and they head backstage as several referees and Commissioner Slaughter come out to break things up. Next up, a sad-looking Paul Bear heads to the ring. Amusingly, his entrance theme is one of The Undertaker's early themes, despite the fact that Bear is obviously feuding with Taker right now. Bear says he curses the ground that The Undertaker walks on, and it's because of him that he has lost Kane. Last week, when Taker helped Kane fight off seven jobbers, his actions poisoned Kane's mind, and Bearer now cannot find him anywhere. He begs Kane to come home, and that's the end of that segment. Has he tried the ice cream parlor? I know that's the first place I go when I feel sad. A couple scoops of Rocky Road with some whipped cream, chocolate syrup, and sprinkles and those memories of your parents being burned alive in their own funeral home just disappear we head backstage again where we see stone cold leaving a locker room the cameraman then goes inside and we see mark henry lying on the ground with a table on top of him as the headbangers help him out it seems like austin is taking people out in descending order of quality tonight first rock and shamrock then jeff jarrett and now mark henry whose most recent match was on shotgun saturday night against the sultan gotta aim a little bit higher there steve And now we get a montage of Mark Marrow's verbal abuse towards Sable, as well as a recap of his feud with Tom Brandy, a.k.a. the former Salvatore Sincere. Yes, this feud is somehow montage-worthy. These two titans are finally going to have a match to blow off this epic feud, right now. Mark Merrow, accompanies the ring of course by Sable, taking on Tom Brandy, begins the match with that classic heel move of hiding behind Sable and then pushing her into Brandy, because verbal abuse is not always enough. Sometimes, you gotta turn that shit physical. And speaking of which, at one point, Brandy elbows Merrow in the face, causing him to fall out of the ring where he lands on top of Sable. Her ankle is seemingly hurt, and Merrow proceeds to yell at her for... Uh, breaking his fall, I guess? Brandy throws Merrow back into the ring and checks on Sable to see if she's okay. He then picks her up because she can't walk, so Merrow takes advantage by hitting Brandy with an axe handle, which causes him to drop Sable. I think she has actually taken more bumps in this match than Merrow has. Back in the ring, Merrow hits Brandy with a TKO. He sets up for a second one, but before he can deliver it, Stone Cold has entered the ring behind him. He hits Merrow with a stunner, and presumably, he just gave Merrow the victory by disqualification. Austin doesn't even bother hitting Brandy with one because, really, that's like LeBron challenging an 8th grader to a game of one-on-one. It's just, it's not fair. <laughs> on his way out, Austin comes face-to-face with Sable, and then he just leaves without helping her at all. Seemingly turned on by his indifference to her pain, Sable looks back at Austin as he heads up the ramp, and she makes googly eyes at him. If you want to see a stone-cold Sable romance storyline, give me a hell no. Fucking no way. No thank you. Next up, Flash Funk versus the artist formerly known as Gold Dust with Luna Vachon. Speaking of relics from the new generation, Flash Funk is apparently still a thing. Sadly, no gets with him tonight. As for his opponent, well, two weeks ago Goldust was dressed as a Christmas tree, and then last week he was Baby New Year, and now, perhaps because he's facing Flash Funk, he's dressed as a horrendously offensive African-American stereotype from the 70s. Here is an actual description of his outfit. Leopard print coat, gold chains, bell bottoms, a fake afro wig, and he's carrying a boombox. Oh, and of course his face is painted in blackface. Memo to the WWE. I know you think blackface is absolutely hilarious, since you still occasionally show that clip of DX dressed up as the Nation of Domination, but it's pretty much the most racist thing you can possibly do, just so we're clear on that. For his part, Flash Funk does confront Goldust as though he's offended by the outfit, but sadly he doesn't stiff the shit out of him. His offense seemed pretty safe, but I was honestly hoping he was going to beat the living fuck out of Goldie for that. Stop me if you've heard this before. This was yet another short match, which ended with outside interference. In this case, Flash went to the top rope to go for the 450 splash, but Luna shoved him off in clear view of the referee to earn the disqualification. After the match, Golddust hit Flash with the curtain call, but then, as if my prayers of stiffing the fuck out of someone had just been answered, Vader came to the ring to attack Golddust. He whipped him off the ropes and shouldered him to the ground, but that was the only move he could manage as Golddust retreated up the aisleway. These two will face each other at the Royal Rumble, and during that match, I am now hoping that Vader gives out enough potatoes to supply the entire state of Idaho. We then get a quick montage informing us that Steve Blackman will be competing in the Royal Rumble as well. Blackman only debuted two months ago, and he did it in one of my favorite wrestling cliches. He jumped the guardrail and helped out another wrestler, so apparently the WWF just said, sure, let's give him a job. Memo to fans out there, if you want a wrestling company to hire you, just start attacking the superstars. It's common sense. Next up, WWF Tag Team Champions, the New Age Outlaws, versus the Headbangers. A few minutes into the match, of all people, the Godwins show up at the top of the ramp to presumably scout the competition, but fuck that, because I must give kudos to Road Dogg and Thrasher for doing a spot I don't think I've ever seen before. Each one of them went to dropkick the other at the same time, and because of that, they each ended up kicking each other simultaneously in the dick, and both of them sold it while they did these slow crawls to their respective tag partners. Truly innovative offense here by these mat technicians. At this point, the Godwins just left presumably because they had witnessed one of the best spots in wrestling history. Unfortunately, then we got the finish. The Headbangers set Billy up for their finishing move, the stage dive, which involves Mosh lifting the opponent up into a powerbomb position, while Thrasher comes off the top rope and leg drops the opponent. Instead, what happened here is that Mosh began to pick Billy up, and Thrasher idiotically jumped too early, so he just fell on his ass. Billy then shifted the momentum and landed on Mosh, for the three count. I don't know if they planned the spot that way, but the headbangers looked like absolute morons here. Even Jim Ross thought it was unintentional because he said the headbangers just beat themselves. After the match, the outlaws continued to beat on the dumbasses until Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie headed to ringside, accompanied by the incredibly loud noise of Terry Funk's chainsaw. Wisely, the outlaws scampered away before a stalker-esque murder could take place. We now cut to pre-taped footage of Don King, who you may remember as Mike Tyson's sleazy, tall-haired promoter. Quick side note. We've had a lot of fun talking about pretend murders tonight, but please remember that Don King has legitimately killed two people in real life. One time shooting a man in the back, and another time stomping a man to death. But don't worry, he paid his debt to society, he went to prison for just under four years, so justice was definitely served. It's okay. King says he's excited for Tyson to appear at WrestleMania, but nothing has been finalized yet. He and Vince McMahon are still working things out, but he knows they will get it done, and Tyson will be there on March 29th. So basically... There's still no actual announcement, but I'm sure Vince loved having Don King on WWF television since he has such a hard-on for mainstream exposure. One more fun side note, only two months after this segment airs, Mike Tyson ends up suing Don King for $100 million because King defrauded millions of dollars from him. They'll eventually settle out of court for $14 million, only in America. We now cut to footage of the first ever Hell in a Cell match, which took place a few months ago at the pay-per-view called Bad Blood, you know, it used to be Mad Love, between The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. If you've never seen this match, seriously, you need to give it a look. Shawn is a complete asshole prima donna at this point in time, but my god, he sells like a million bucks for Taker in this match, and thereby also puts over the brutality of the Hell in a Cell concept right off the bat. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Some of the famous images include Undertaker throwing Sean's bloody face into the cage, the two of them brawling on top of the cage, Sean falling off the side of the cage through the announce table, and the absolutely sick final chair shot from Taker that looks like it completely kills Sean until Kane makes his debut and Tombstone's Taker enabling Sean to pick up the win. That pay-per-view was three months ago at this point, but presumably they want to show the footage to take some eyes away from Nitro while also hyping the upcoming casket match between Taker and HBK at the Royal Rumble in a few weeks. And now... It's time for Shawn Michaels to head back to the ring. He calls out The Undertaker, including referring to him as a loser and even doing the L on his forehead because... 90s. This brings out the Druids who are pushing the same casket from last week, which is defaced with DX Graffiti. HBK says he thought Triple H and China would be a little more original than to surprise him in the same way that he came out of the casket last week. He tells them they can jump out now, but then we see that Hunter and China are actually at the top of the ramp trying to get Shawn's attention. HBK even gets in a classic horror movie line when he says, but if you're up there who's in the casket? The only thing missing was him saying, is it a g-g-g-ghost? Of course. Now the Undertaker pops out and drags HBK inside as we go off the air. I realize that was supposed to seem like a cool moment, but it just made Sean look like a dumbass for calling out the Undertaker and then being surprised when he actually showed up. Seriously, dude, what'd you expect? You don't fuck with a guy who has supernatural powers. Now, let's go to the wrap-up. The ratings recap. Nitro wins again with a 4.3 rating to Raw's 3.3. On this night, Nitro was kicking off the new year in their home base of Atlanta, Georgia, with a marquee show at the Georgia Dome. Their attendance was a hefty 26,773. I'm pretty sure that isn't a sellout because they'll end up cramming over 40,000 people into the same arena roughly six months from now, but almost 27,000 people for a Nitro is certainly a great figure. And here are the results for that show. Diamond Dallas Page beat Chris Jericho to retain his United States Championship. Goldberg defeated Stevie Ray. John Nord defeated the Barbarian. Yes, that's right. WCW gave us the hotly anticipated Berserker versus Barbarian match in 1998. Juventud Guerrera defeated Psychosis to become the number one contender for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Booker T defeated Prince Ayakea to retain his world television title. Ray Trailer and the Steiner brothers defeated NWO members Buff Bagwell, Conan, and Scott Norton. Rick Martell defeated Brad Armstrong. Wow, seriously, Rick Martell was still going in 1998, huh? Scotty Riggs and Perry Saturn defeated Steve Mongo McMichael and Chris Benoit, who? And Lex Luger defeated Randy Savage. Not gonna lie, even with a few stinkers, that Nitro sounds light years better than what Raw gave us. I guess what I'm saying is, tune in next week for the Nitro Attitude Podcast. Alright, well, maybe not. Some interesting things are actually happening this week for WCW. You may recall last week Sting and Hulk Hogan had their WCW World Heavyweight Championship rematch on Nitro the night after Starrcade, but the match went long and they had to go off the air, so the fans didn't get to see how it ended. Well, the good news is they will finally get to see what happened after Nitro went off the air, because they will be airing that footage this Thursday, January 8th, on the debut of a show called... WCW Thunder. Yes, this was a time when WCW was so red hot that having one show just wasn't enough, so they expanded to two more hours. Will that work in their favor, or are they risking oversaturating their product? Stay tuned. As for a synopsis of Raw, unfortunately, this episode had several of the classic Vince Russo trademarks. All the matches were five minutes or less, and every single one of them contained outside interference, a post-match beatdown, or both. Steve Austin giving out stunners was entertaining enough, but the final segment with Sean and Taker was a waste of time, and most wrestling fans probably didn't give two shits about what Don King had to say. Also, tonight's episode marked the debut of Jim Cornette's NWA angle, or, as I like to refer to it, the original Invasion. Unfortunately, by most accounts, this angle is not very enjoyable for various reasons. Namely, the whole concept of it is, Jim Cornette thinks wrestling is changing, and he would prefer it stays exactly the same from now until the end of time. Of course, as you can tell from the increased ratings and larger crowds, the fans clearly do want the product to change, and we now know retroactively this is going to result in the WWF being more successful than it ever has been, or ever will be again. Of course, Maybe I'm misremembering and this angle will end up being awesome, especially if Cornette gets a lot of mic time, but something tells me I will ultimately end up being as disappointed as Barry Windham was when Vince McMahon tossed him a pair of camouflage pants. And speaking of which, I will now leave you this week with a clip of that time the stalker called out a bunch of main eventers he would never end up wrestling. As always, thanks for listening, feel free to review us on iTunes, or drop us a line at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, and I will catch you next time.
0: in the world wrestling federation there are a lot of predators like the mastodon vader the skilled gold dust the very cunning stone cold steve austin and the crazed maniac mankind but when the stalker enters the World Wrestling Federation, those predators will become my prey.